you have your Bible this morning, I would love for you to turn to Acts chapter 9 as we continue this series that we've been going through, looking at the early church and the mission that Jesus gave them in this book of Acts. And as you turn there, I, I kind of was reflecting on our passage this week and uh, look and saw some of this uh, connection with my own life. I mentioned a few weeks ago, our youngest, uh, Brannigan, just turned two a few weeks ago. And so we're kind of in a strange stage of life with him where so many things are changing uh, as he kind of moves from being a baby to a toddler. Um, means he's becoming a lot more sassy, which is, uh, no is becoming a favorite word of his. Uh, but also some fun changes as well, um, specifically when it comes to some of the things that he uses on, on a regular basis. So many of the things that, uh, as baby turns to big boy, so many things about the products that we have as, as parents to help us in that uh, are convertible. They, they undergo conversions, like transformers for adults almost. You know, I knew that would come into play as a kid as we change these things to other things. But you think about, you know, changing tables and they become potty trained, those become just another dresser or a high chair becomes a booster seat until they, you know, become uh, able to sit in a chair on their own. Eventually his crib will be turned into uh, a bed. Now all these things take place um, because if it, you know, if, for, if they were just for infants, they wouldn't last very long. We know that babies don't stay babies. And so these kind of conversions of changing from one thing to another is really necessary to give true life and purpose, prolonged life and purpose even to the product. And as I thought about this conversion aspect of things that we'll be looking at today in this chapter, I realized, you know, this foundational truth that conversion, you know, Christianity at its, at its heart is a call to conversion. Everything that we say, everything we believe, everything we do, all is, is constructed upon this foundational premise that you don't have to stay the way that you are, that your life can be radically changed by God. In fact, to be a follower of Jesus, it has to be radically changed. That conversion is necessary, but it's also the assurance that who you were doesn't have to be who you are in Jesus. Our conversion through the cross of Christ is precisely what leads us to gather this morning. It is what makes the church so influential. It makes our community so powerful. It's what makes our mission so impactful. And so today, as we continue this series, The Church Has Left the Building, we come to what many have called the most conver famous conversion in all of church history. It's a story that's not just told once or twice, but actually three times in this book of Acts. And as we look at this this morning, we see again another shift in Acts, as we have seen a couple of times so far in this book, as uh, the mission of Jesus continues to expand and the message of the gospel continues to expand all over the world. We begin this series in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus telling his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That it will continue, his message and mission will continue to expand and grow from this epicenter in Jerusalem. We saw initially this happen as Peter proclaimed the message of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection on the day of Pentecost, and the church was born, and 3,000 were added to their number. We see that began in Jerusalem. Last week, we looked at Philip, this deacon, that as the church is beginning to spread out, this deacon was out and, and preaching the Samaritans and preaching to this Ethiopian eunuch, which is what we saw last week. And then this morning, we begin to see that shift again as the message goes from those fairly localized places and begins to spread to the ends of the earth. 
And so you might expect as Jesus has given this commission to his early followers that he has to have one of them in mind to ultimately carry out this larger work, to go into the ends of the known world. Maybe he had in mind, you'd think, Peter, who has proved himself to be bold and an effective communicator, capable of reaching the masses. Or maybe Philip, like we saw last week, who's proven himself to be able to go to these great reaches to reach people that are not like him to do whatever it takes as the Spirit leads him to reach out to those who still need to know about the love of Jesus. But it's not either of those two, but no, Jesus has somebody else in mind to head up this worldwide mission of the church, and it's probably the person that you would last expect. It's Saul, the church persecutor. Now, I'm first to admit at face value, this doesn't really seem like God's best plan. You know, if you're going to pick somebody to spearhead this mission, somebody who's actively opposed to it might not be the best choice. I mean, it would be like enlisting King George to be the hero of the American Revolution. You know, getting Hitler as the main guy to defeat the Nazis, making Bill Gates the CEO of Apple back in the 90s. It just seems counterintuitive, counterproductive to the mission at hand. But Jesus shows us this morning that he is about to transform Saul in a powerful way, not only to make him an effective missionary, but to teach us some very powerful lessons about the grace that each of us have received. So I'd love for you to read with me this story in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who had belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners of the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is 
the Messiah. We look at this passage and we see a fairly straightforward story, but one that will have implications uh, not just for Saul's life, but for the life of the church as a whole, even continuing today uh, as we read his letters and read of his stories and following Jesus and planting churches all over that world. But it all started because of this persecution uh, that Saul, in large part, headed up and, and was char- and taking charge of. After the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, the first martyr of the church, we're told that all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so what I find is ironic, what was originally designated as the, from the leaders to stop the spread of this Christianity, to stop the spread of this dangerous message in their mind, once and for all, to put an end to it, this persecution has actually really served to press the gospel further and further from its beginnings in Jerusalem. We see this morning that it has spread as far as Damascus, which is about 150 miles away. And so Saul sets out on this week-long walk to Damascus with these extradition orders to bring back any fleeing Christians, bring them back to the Sanhedrin to answer to them, and ready to get his hands on any men or, or women or anyone who proclaimed to follow this message, any followers of the way, as Luke calls it. And I love that description that Luke has of, of this Christian life as the way. You know, he doesn't call it the, you know, the meeting or the once a weekers or the godly when they feel like it. No, he, he doesn't even call it the church. And we see in this there's, this, there's this lifestyle faith that's taking place. This is the way, just as Jesus has proclaimed himself, the way, the truth, the life. So the church also identifies in him with that and the mission in him with that to point others to Jesus. And so on his way to squash the way, Saul receives these words that will change his life forever. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus, and that, in a moment, flips his entire worldview on its head. That Jesus is actually alive, that he is the Messiah as he claimed to be, that those in close relationship with him are identifying with him, that he identifies with them in their persecution. And as Saul is persecuting Christians, he is actually standing in the way of the God he is so zealously trying to serve. And so we see this, this is Saul's story. It's not a complicated one for many of you, maybe even a familiar one. And so there's so much that we could say about this conversion this morning, but to, as we unpack this, what I really want to do is kind of step back 25 years in my own life to the back to the days of Sesame Street. If you have kids or grandkids have seen Sesame Street, maybe you remember uh, so many of those episodes start out with today's episode is brought to you by the letter W or B or, or whatever the letter is, and everything in that episode surrounds and centers on that letter. To take a page from that, I want to say this sermon is brought to you by the word grace, that everything we see in Paul's conversion story is all about the grace of Jesus, the grace available to Jesus that God gives us despite no earning of our own, no merit on our behalf. And so there are three lessons in particular that I want to look at this morning to learn or, or relearn or recognize about God's grace in Saul's story. But I don't want to just leave it in Saul's story, because each of us must recognize that these lessons that apply concerning the grace that was given to Saul apply to each of us. And, and as we carry the message of God's desperately needed grace out of this building and into the world, we must first remember the grace that was given to us. 
So the first lesson we see this morning when it comes to this grace and Saul's story and in our own is that grace is God-initiated. Grace is God-initiated. We learn about this in Saul's story in this dramatic way, in this unusual way. That he did not seek to set out to earn this grace or even find this grace to discover it on his own, but it was simply by God's initiating act that he discovered this grace. It's only by God's purest grace that Saul came to find and follow Jesus. I look at Saul's story and, and I see it that his story is a particularly unusual one because this is not the way conversion usually happens. Usually when someone comes to follow Jesus, they must make a decision to follow. And we see this in Jesus' disciples. He says, come and follow me, and they have to actively make the decision to leave behind all they have known, to follow after their rabbi, after their Lord. But for Saul, he didn't decide, make a decision for, in fact, he was decidedly against this Jesus movement. But God's grace entered Saul's life in this powerful and profound way. That he was not seeking after Jesus, but God still used him and gave them this grace as a gift that Saul, more than most, had done nothing to earn. And this is a foundational point of our faith, that this giftedness of grace is, that is God's from beginning to end. That there is nothing that we can do to earn it, there is nothing we can do to purchase it, nothing that we can do to merit it on our own. Saul would later, Paul would later say in his own words in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And I think we, we read a verse like that, and we know that, we've heard that verse many times if you grew up in church, and I think it's easy to become so comfortable and so familiar with this grace that it's, it's easy to forget it's not something owed to us. And the harsh reality is that God, in His greatness and in His holiness and in His perfection, if He were to say, you know, I'm not going to show them grace, I'm going to withhold my forgiveness, that He would be well within His right to do so, and there is nothing that we could do about it. But the truth of grace is that the cross tells us a different story. That the cross tells us that God did not want to withhold His forgiveness, that He loves us too much. That his holiness, yes, is, is, must cause him to be separate from sin, but that he would pave a way for us to be with him forever. And as we see this, we think, you know, Jesus paid such a high price for grace. Why is it that so many people miss it? You know, why doesn't Jesus just zap everybody with his grace gun and make sure that all of us can get to spend eternity with him in heaven? But the truth, again, of grace is that while it is available to every one of us, Just because it's free doesn't mean that it's cheap, that it came at an enormous and great price. And while we can't earn it, we do have to accept it. Maybe some of you will remember back in the days uh, of radio programming when they would have, you know, gift uh, giveaways. And they would say, you know, just call and be caller number 10. And and you dial in over and over and over and you hit the redial and you get the busy signal and you have to call back. And finally, you know, you're caller number 10. You've won and you get the prize and you celebrate. But what has to happen at that point? You have to go down to the radio station to get the gift. There's nothing that you did to to earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't pay for it. You just happened to be the right caller at the right time. And in the same way, grace is a free gift, but it still has to be redeemed. It still have to be accepted and used. And Saul understood this. When grace takes hold of his life, he was never the same again. And in that, we see the second lesson of grace this morning, that grace 
changes us. But it is God initiated that he gives it to us through no merit of our own. But once we receive it, we can't sit back on it. We have to use it. It changes us. That grace is a gift that comes with expectations. And that primary expectation is transformation of our lives. Maybe think of it this way. When I was in eighth grade, I got the best gift I've ever received as a birthday gift. Uh, It was a really odd way to get it. I opened a small box, and it was a roll of toilet paper and a pair of underwear. And I thought, you know, I've got some pretty lame gifts in my day, but this might be the worst. And so I just gave my mom and dad a quizzical look, and my mom said, well, you... You said if you ever got one of these that you would probably mess your pants, and she pulled out a box Stradivarius trumpet, this trumpet that I had been saving up for and trying to buy. It was far beyond my means to do so, and I was so excited. This trumpet, it changed the way I played. I practiced more. It sounded better than any trumpet I ever had. It changed the way I I used this gift. Well, take that in comparison then with the, the guitar that I never learned to play and that usually sits in my closet at home. And which one of these do you think brought more joy to the giver? The one that I used and I exercised and I, and I practiced with and I, it changed me? Or the one that I used mostly as a prop to try to attract girls in college and didn't really work to begin with? <laughs> you know, one of those is, it brings more joy to the giver. One of those changed me and the other didn't. See, grace is a gift meant to be used. And while it can't be earned, it must be exercised. When Paul and Saul experiences this grace of the resurrected Jesus on that Damascus road, everything changes for him. His entire life is transformed. I mean, look at Saul's mindset before this moment. We're told that he was in this passage in Acts chapter 9, breathing out murderous threats against the church. I I can't confirm this, but I think that's Greek for you just grounded your teenage daughter from the prom. You know, this is, she is snorting and fuming and huffing with rage. That is Saul in this moment. He is angry and enraged about the followers of Jesus. And this is his MO throughout the the early book, uh, early part of this book. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Again, in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Later, in his own language, as he retells this story, he will say that he had been obsessed by this raging fury. But when Saul is touched by grace, everything changes. His name is changed as he becomes Paul. His mission changes from destroying churches to planting them. His physical eyes undergo blindness, but spiritually he has never been more clearly seeing. He spends three days in, in prayers of repentance in order to turn to Jesus, the one that he had been persecuting up until this point. And even then, we see in Damascus, having come with these papers to ship Christians back to answer before the religious leaders, we're told that he grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The very thing that he set out to stop, he finds himself as the champion of. And so as we look at this grace and the change that is expected, we have to ask, how has it changed us? How has grace changed you? Has it led to a change in identity from who you once were? Have you reflected upon the sin and brokenness and and set out in repentance to turn away from that? 
Have you been led to love your enemies, to open your eyes to the realities in this world that is nothing is greater than following God with your entire life? And I think as we seek to have this mission of being the church that leaves the building, that nothing will threaten that mission and placate our passion more than a faulty understanding of the transformation that grace requires. In other words, we will never be the church that we want to be with the mission that we have been called to have if we do not understand the transforming power of grace in our lives first. So we see in the third lesson of grace, one that is incredibly important to remember as we go out with this mission, as we seek to see others changed by the grace of Jesus, and that is that grace isn't fair. And yet that's the whole point. You see, I think there's the kind of two sides of grace. We love grace. We love talking about grace. We like to live it, experience it. But that's mostly when we get to have it. When we're the ones getting grace, it's a wonderful thing. But it can be really hard for us to accept when someone else gets grace, especially when they've wronged us. If we're being honest with ourselves, you've probably had a conversation with God that goes something along the lines of, how could that person just get off the hook? I mean, you, you don't know how they have made me feel the pain they've caused me, the years and the therapy and the counseling and all the things that's taken me to get over it. They've never even apologized. I mean, I'm all forget them getting grace. They, they, sure, give them Jesus, but make them pay for it first. But this kind of reaction comes from a flawed understanding of what grace really is. Because as much as we might hear things like grace is God initiated and it's a free gift and it changes, all those things are good to hear until we have to live it out. You see, our default mode can be that nothing comes for free and that everything worth having needs work for. And so we find ourselves against what we know to be working for grace and upset when others don't work as hard. I think of it this way, when I was a kid... I was probably about 10 years old, and for years, all of my friends had gotten allowances from their parents. You know, they'd get money every week, and, and I thought, I had to wait for my birthday and Christmas, and both of them in the same month, so I was broke most of the year. And so I thought, well, you know, when am I get my allowance? And so finally, as I was older, my parents decided they were going to pay my brother and I $5 a week. We get paid every other week, uh, and, and it was basically slave labor. I got like a nickel per job. I'm thinking, my friends just get it for free. What's up with that? But one of those jobs was emptying the dishwasher. And when I was younger, I was at a stage where uh, basically my capability was emptying just the silverware tray. And so my brother did the entire dishwasher, and I just had to do the silverware, which was a great deal for me, especially as I got older, and the job description never changed. So my brother is still emptying the entire dishwasher, and I'm like 15 just doing the silverware. It was wonderful. <laughs> But my brother would get mad because though he was doing more work, his, my, my pay was the same. And I think it's often the same with grace. We say, Jesus, you know, I've worked harder. I've done more. Why should they get the same pass that I do? Why should they get the same grace that I do? And the truth is that Saul's conversion story is messy. Because I think we know who Saul will become and what he will do for the church. It's easy to kind of sterilize his conversion story, to take out the messiness of the grace in his story. But think about what Saul had done. He is in this mission, in this position where he found Jesus because he had been given approval to chase after people, breathing out murderous threats, that there was blood on his hands from the martyrs of the church, that he was taking men and women from their homes and tearing their lives apart, throwing them in prison. 
I mean, here he is willing to walk 150 miles just to do his part to kill the church. And yet, despite all of this, God says, Saul, not only are you forgiven, but you will be my man to bring this Jesus movement to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure that for many who heard about this experience, they had a dishwasher moment. God, this this guy has killed your people, and he has destroyed their lives, and you're going to not just forgive him, but you're going to use him? That's hard to believe. It certainly would have been hard for the people around Saul. We see this in this disciple Ananias, this guy that God calls to go and, and minister to Saul to disciple him. I love Ananias' response. He's almost like, yeah, God, um, about that, I know this guy, and, and maybe I should inform you about what he's done, because to go to him is kind of suicidal. And I equally love God's response, because he says, I'll worry about what Saul has done. You just go do what I've told you to do. And I think the same is said for us as we seek to be this church that leaves the building to go tell others about the grace of Jesus. That we don't need to worry about who they were and what they've done. Because the same price that was paid for us was paid for them. Grace isn't fair, but neither was Jesus dying for my sin and your sin. Grace isn't fair, but neither was it for the Son of God to go to the cross to experience all of the pain and the death and and the, the, the taking on of our sin, the punishment of the entire world on himself despite his perfection as a common criminal. Grace isn't fair, but that's the whole point. And I love that in this beautiful moment of obedience, Ananias has this response that I think all of us should seek to have when a sinner receives grace. Notice the first words that Ananias says to Saul. He says, brother Saul, brother. It's quite possible that the first words that Saul heard from the lips of another Christian after receiving grace were words of welcome. Words that confirm that though he was once lost, though he was once an enemy, though he was once in rebellion, now he is a part of the family. And if you hear nothing else from the sermon this morning, what I want you to remember is this. The grace of God calls us not only love our enemies, but the grace of God allows our enemies to become our brothers and sisters. Some of you probably don't know the name Mitsuo Fushida. Some of you might have a better idea of his identity if I tell you his name is connected to December 7th, 1941. You see, Fushida was a Japanese Navy pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor at the onset of America's entry into World War II. As an up-and-comer in the Japanese Army, Fushida had logged over 10,000 hours to become the most experienced pilot in Japan in preparation for this attack. By the time this attack was said and done, it would leave four U.S. battleships beyond repair as well as 3,300 U.S. soldiers killed and over 1,000 more wounded. Not too long after that attack, a U.S. soldier by the name of Jacob de Sazer would become a POW on the other side of the world in Japan. And after 40 months of imprisonment, torture, and starvation at the hands of his Japanese captors, de Sazer was finally given a Bible, and after reading it, gave his life over to Christ. After being released from prison uh, as a POW, de Sazer returned to the United States, but only long enough to receive training to become a missionary to go back to Japan, where he planted churches for 30 years. 
And if that was not an incredible story enough to go back to those who were his enemies who treated him so poorly, on one occasion, Jacob de Chazer was in a train station handing out tracts containing his story and the story of Scripture. When he would place one of those tracts in the hand of the man who would have never expected Mitsuo Fushida. Fushida was so convicted by the grace that he had received and Shazer's forgiveness, but more importantly, the grace of the cross, that he would also come to give his life to Christ and spend the rest of his life reaching his country with the gospel. You see, only grace can lead a man who spent nearly four years being beaten and tortured and starved, not only to give his life to Christ, but to spend his time the next 30 years as a minister to those very same people who took him captive. And only grace can lead a man who described an attack that killed thousands of soldiers as the most thrilling exploit of my career to change, to not only give his life to Christ, but also minister to those same people. You see, the grace of God not only calls us to love our enemies, but it allows our enemies to become our brothers and sisters. Only grace can do this. And it's the only thing that can free you But as we have been paid for by the blood of Jesus and assured of the life that he now lives, we have been saved for a purpose. That this free gift of grace was given to us so that it would change us, so that we might be able to proclaim the message of the unfairness and the messiness of grace to those who need to hear it most. As we have this mission, I know that it's easy sometimes to come inside these walls and to find everything where it's not so messy that we've all received grace and we get to sit in this Christian bubble and sing songs and worship God and study his word and all of that is important. But how much more to carry out this mission that we've been given, to not allow grace to remain in this room as a treasure that we try to hoard and possess, but one that we freely give as it has been freely given to us. And so as we have received grace, as we have experienced this gift that is God-initiated, that changes us, that isn't fair, the question remains, what will we do with that? Let's pray. Father God, there are so many great stories in this book of Acts. So many historical things that happen in the life of the church that's Amazing to see this life change that happens when people are touched with the message of the gospel with Jesus' death and resurrection. But perhaps none of them are as exciting to me as this one. Because Saul's story is the story of each of us. That all of us were at one time lost. All of us were at one time in rebellion. All of us were at one time far from you. But through your grace, we have been brought near. That we have been made part of your family. We are told in John chapter 1 that Jesus came so that we might be called children of God. And only a God like you look at us and in our rebellion and say, I want them as my children. Only a God like you would give grace so freely when it is so within your right to withhold it because of our sinfulness and our brokenness and our messiness and the rebellion of our disobedience. But God, we give you glory and praise and honor because rather than withhold your grace, you freely gave it even when it meant the death of your son. We're so grateful for what Jesus has done for us. So grateful for the grace that we have received in his death. God, I just pray that we would not hold that to ourselves. 
but in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, wherever we travel as your church, that we would likewise bestow the grace that has been bestowed on us. And that even in the messiness, even people messy like Saul who are actively opposed to the church, we see the redemptive power of grace and forgiveness that is available to each of us. And I pray that we would make it our mission and embolden us for the mission. Empower us with your spirit to proclaim boldly the message of your grace. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.